See, when we begin to actually expect other people to let us down, it frees us to do one of two things. The first is we can believe everybody's gonna let us down and become really angry and cynical and hateful. I can't trust anybody because they're all terrible. But when we do that, we in turn become just like the very people that are letting us down. We begin to hurt in the exact same way that they've hurt us. Or when we expect people to let us down, we're actually freed for an opposite response. Rather than being shocked and disappointed and really hurt when people sin against us, we can see it's exactly consistent with who they are. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Why are Christians so unlike Christ? So hypocritical, so hateful, so angry. It's really easy to look around at other people and see all of the things they do wrong and be really, really bothered by it. Has anybody wronged you this week? Done something against you? Or maybe left something undone that they should have done? You needed help and they ignored you? You asked them to put the dishes in the dishwasher and they ended up in the sink? Sorry. Somebody you know and love has treated you with less than love in return? Why are Christians so unlike Christ? In this series, Let Down, we're examining our realistic expectations. What is it that we need to begin to expect of other people, of of ourselves? What is it that should help us get more out of expecting less? And last week, we looked at giving grace to yourself. Expect yourself to fail. It's okay when you fail. Be forgiven. And today, we get a look at the other side of things. Initially, I titled this message, People Suck, Deal With It. But somebody said, I don't like that word. Can we say people stink? Sure. Y'all stink. Deal with it. You see, the reality is we want to look for the best in other people, right? We want them to treat us kindly and act nicely and be filled with love and non-judgmental, and we want them to treat us the way that we would treat them and all these good and wonderful flowery things. But you don't have to know too many people to know most of the time, people stink. Like even really good people whom you really deeply love and you trust, let you down. And you would think after years and years of doing this together, we would figure something out. And yet 50 years into marriage, you're still recognizing, I don't know my partner. 
where did this come from? You find yourself dealing with bosses who you thought were really good bosses and should treat you like good bosses do, and instead they're kind of jerks. You find yourself coming to church and looking at the people sitting around you, really let down that they continue to be so hypocritical or sinful or broken. Well, the reality is that you and I need to face, we all suck. That's it. Like we try to think of people as generally good. That's not the story we get in scripture. In fact, the story of scripture is that every single one of us is inherently bad. But we don't like that idea. Because if we're all really bad, what should we expect of other people other than more really bad things? So we just like to say to ourselves that we're pretty good. I'm not nearly as bad as that person, or I I certainly could be worse. My sins are really small sins. It's not that big of a deal. And we have a tendency to minimize the weight of our sin while increasing the weight of others. See, when we make mistakes and we mess up, it's really easy to say, well, that wasn't my intention. Let me tell you what I meant to do or what I was trying to say or what I hoped for. But when other people make a mistake, rather than seeing what they might have been trying as good or or giving them the benefit of the doubt and hoping for good intentions, we begin to say, see all that's wrong with those people? And maybe we label them with different names hateful or arrogant or, or all kinds of different things. We want to say that's who they are, but surely I'm not that way, right? Today in scripture, we're going to be looking at the story of a man named Jacob. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Jacob? Even if you have no idea who he is, a guy named Jacob. A little backstory, Jacob is the grandson of a guy named Abraham. Kind of a big deal. See, Abraham was given a promise, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. And not only that, your descendants will be a blessing to the entire world. And through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. No small shoes for Jacob to fill. I mean, he's coming after Isaac, right? The son who was supposed to be sacrificed and then God saved him at the last minute. There's nothing to really live up to there. But what we see in the story of Jacob, this man who's regarded in great uh, respect and honor as one of the patriarchs, the fathers of our faith, we see that Jacob, from the very beginning, was kind of a terrible dude. So join with me as we go through kind of some of the moments in his life where we just see how much he blew it over and over again. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 25 with his birth. It says this in 22, the children struggled together within her. She said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? You see, Jacob was a twin. He had another brother named Esau And Esau happened to be just seconds older than him. And you guys know what those older siblings are like, right? They're the worst. And for those of us middle children, we know just how bad they are. They're terrible. And even in the womb, Jacob and his brother Esau, they fight it in such a way that his mom was like, what is happening? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. That idea of the hand holding the heel, super strange. Like, I've never seen that happen. We also have never had twins, so maybe that happens for twins more often. I don't know. But it's this Hebrew idiom, one who holds the heel would be one who's deceitful or one who lies and cheats. He comes out of the womb holding the heel of his brother, so they name him Jacob, which literally means he who holds the heel or he who cheats. How would you like it if your parents like, hey, you know what we should name you? Cheater. That's it. <laughs> Liar. Mistake. Oh, what? No. Right? Like, his parents name him Jacob, which literally means the one who cheats. He's off to a good start. Just a little bit later. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? I, I like these siblings together. One's just seconds older. See, in the culture and the custom, a birthright was your inheritance. And the firstborn got twice as much inheritance as all the rest. So by just seconds, Jacob missed out on a whole lot of inheritance. Right? By just moments, he missed out. And Esau comes one day in from the field after a long and exhausting hard day of work, just absolutely famished. Can I have some of the food you've spent all day cooking? Sure. If you sell me your inheritance... What, what a deal there, right? Here's the guy who's been promised to be blessed by God to bless the world, given this inheritance a double portion, twice as much, in exchange for some stew. What kind of a brother is that? Esau responds, I'm about to die. Like, does it really matter what inheritance I get? Like, I am so famished, I'm going to die. Anybody ever spent a few minutes around my kids? You'll learn that my kids are perpetually moments away from starving to death. We just finished eating 20 minutes ago and I'm so hungry all the time. Esau comes in really hungry and his brother, rather than serving him or being kind to him or saying, yeah, sure, I got a little bit of stew. Hey, if you give me half, if you give me twice what I was owed already, if you give me all of your inheritance, then I'll give you some stew. What a good and loving brother, right? This story continues then a little bit later. So in this next chapter, God makes some promises to Isaac. And then after this in chapter 27, comes the moment where Isaac is almost dead. And in the culture, there were two different things. You had a birthright, that's the physical property and the inheritance. And then you had a blessing. And the blessing was intended also for the oldest son 
And the blessing would be all of God's promises, all of these yeses are for you now. And we live in a culture where that's really strange. Like on our deathbed, we don't turn to our oldest kid normally and say, you shall get all of my fame and glory and honor, but you, yeah, whatever, all right? But this is what's about to happen. Isaac, he's nearly dead. His sight is gone. And he tells Esau, go into the field, catch me some food, bring it back, prepare it for me. And after I've eaten a good meal, then I will give you your blessing. Spoiler alert, a lot of the times that these stories are told happen around food. Because I think we see the worst in people when they're hungry and when they're overfed. Have you ever noticed that? Like when you're overfed, you don't want to do anything. And if anybody tells you to do something, hold the phone. It's going to get real. So Isaac, he sends them out and Rebecca hears this and then says to Jacob, now's your chance to take this blessing. Jacob says, well, I can't take this blessing. Like, first off, I'm not very hairy. He's going to notice when he touches me that I don't feel like Esau at all. So she has him go and kill a goat and he begins, she begins to prepare the food and he takes that skin and puts it on so he's now suddenly super hairy. And he takes some of his clothes so he smells like Esau and he goes in with this food to deceive his father. What a wonderful man we should all look to as an example, right? Not only am I gonna cheat my brother, I'm now gonna lie to my father to steal something that I desperately want. He goes in and his dad's like, hold on, aren't, The voice, it sounds like Jacob, come here so I can feel your arms. He comes and he's like, oh, well, the the arms and hands are hairy like Esau, but the voice sounds like Jacob. Huh. Well, come closer so I can smell your clothes. Yeah, you smell like your brother. Which, first off, that sounds terrible, right? (laughs) But you smell like him, you, you feel like him, you, I guess, must be him. And so then Jacob uh, receives this blessing. It says in verse, um, 26, then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And then a little bit later, as you can only imagine, Esau comes back. Dad, I've done what you've asked. I've followed your instructions. I'm ready for a blessing. But he's already given this blessing away. He says, please bless me, father. So I, I can't, I'll give you a different blessing but you can't have that first one. That's already his. And so now Esau is mad. He's not only lost his inheritance, he's lost all the promises of God's blessing on his life that he thought he was owed. So think of your siblings if you have any. What would you do in response to your brother who's now twice cheated you out of what was yours? Probably exactly what Esau said plan to do. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's right. The only way to fix this mess is to get rid of him forever. Vengeance is mine. I shall kill my brother, but only after my dad has died. Once he's died and we've grieved, we've had the funeral and all that stuff, then I'm going to kill him because my dad can't take it back and fix it, right? So Jacob does the only sensible thing as a cheater who's cheated multiple times. 
he runs away. In fact, his mom says, here's what you should do. Run away to your uncle. Your uncle will protect you. And maybe while you're there, you can get married and things will just start to go well for you. And so Jacob leaves and he goes and stumbles upon his uncle Laban and he finds his cousins wildly attractive. I know, super weird for us, right? It was a different day and age. Like think Alabama, except hundreds of years ago. It was totally normal then, right? Okay. (laughs) So he goes and he finds his cousins and he wants to marry one. That's where we're going to pick the story up. Chapter 29, beginning verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. First off, just like a little pause. Do you ever find the Bible really weird and also really real? Like here comes Jacob and he's like, she's kind of squinty, can't see straight. Glasses weren't yet invented, right? Her eyes are kind of weak. I don't know. She looks funny. But this one over here, what? What a jerk. Continues. Jacob loved Rachel, of course, right? And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Starstruck, awe in his eyes. I'll do whatever it takes to have this beautiful woman. Seven years of serving you? Fine, I'll be your servant for seven years. No big deal. Finally, at the end of this time comes the moment, the prize, his reward. Finally, he gets to marry this woman he's just starstruck with. But as you should expect from the title of the sermon, he's going to be a little let down because everybody kind of stinks. Here's what happens. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. He went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So he has this big feast, probably a little bit too much to drink. He's really exciting, excited. It's his wedding night. But they didn't have all the candles and the lamps and the things we have today, like electricity, where you can brighten up the night and know what's happening. So when the sun goes down, it's kind of a guesswork for most of us. So Laban presents his veiled daughter to him, And he goes to be with his bride, only to find in the morning it wasn't who he thought it would be. Now what? See, for us in our culture, we sometimes treat sex and what comes with that as just a thing we exchange and it's no big deal, but that's not the way it is for them. You see, it was a binding act where two literally become one and nothing should or could ever separate them from that moment. So now Jacob, after seven long and hard years of working, has been cheated out of the very relationship he wanted. A little bit of irony that the cheater is now cheated by his uncle. So he's furious. 
He says, what was this all about? And says this, Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Look, if you want both, our custom is the oldest has to get married first. And even that still kind of happens today a little bit, right? Some family's like, hey, you can't get married yet. It's my turn. Wait your turn. No, no, no. The oldest has to get married first. So if you also want the youngest daughter, just seven more years of labor, you can have both. Also, sometimes the Bible's kind of weird, right? What in the world is that all about? So he agrees. Okay, for seven more years, I'll work for you. So he now has two wives. I don't recommend it. One is tough enough. In fact, what you find next, two wives cause twice the problems because the two sisters, you know how sisters can be. Sometimes they get a little envious or a little mad or maybe the the, the way they talk to each other isn't the nicest, but now they not only have that problem, they have this man in the center of their problems. And so Leah gets envious and jealous of Rachel how she's so much more loved. And God, in his weird way, blesses Leah with four sons, but closes Rachel's womb. See, a son was a sign that your future was secure and that there was hope that your name and your legacy and your respect would carry on. But that's not happening with Rachel. And there's envy and there's bitterness and there's fighting and it's pretty ugly. Jacob, he serves for an additional seven years. Now 21 years, he's been working for his uncle. Remember, he ran away from his brother he thought was going to kill him. And after 21 years, it's time to go back home, time to uh, wrap things up, and maybe his brother will have calmed down. So he begins to go back home. And in the journey, what he finds is, first off, again, his uncle tries to cheat him yet again. His uncle promises, I'll give you some of my flocks, some of my stuff. And then his uncle tries to swindle him because people stink. You should be seeing a pattern now. It doesn't matter if you're Jacob or Rachel or Leah or Laban or Esau, one after the next. They just keep hurting each other and causing pain and doing what is wrong instead of what is right. Jacob, he begins to return And on the way, he sees Esau at a distance. He actually sends some people ahead. Go and find my brother so you can know, like, what kind of mood am I getting into? Uh, How how big of a fight do I have to put up with my brother? What's about to happen? Sure enough, these messengers come back. Esau's coming to see you with 400 men. I don't think that's going to be peaceful. Like, if we're going to take this outside, I want it to be one-on-one, not me on 400, right? My odds aren't very good there. So Jacob, he panics. He's terrified and afraid what's going to happen. It says this, chapter 33. And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants put the servants with their children in front of him, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. 
It's like, I'm about to die. What can I do? Well, if I separate people, maybe somebody will get away, right? Maybe he'll just take my servants and he'll be satisfied now that he has all these servants and then he'll spare me. Maybe something. So he goes on just bowing himself down to the ground. Please, please, please. I'm so sorry. I screwed up. Please don't kill me. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. And Esau responds in the most remarkable of way. Says this in verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. See, Jacob's expecting Esau to come at him with all the anger and the rage and even the justly deserved vengeance of 21 years of a grudge built up. But instead, like a lowly servant, he comes running and throws himself down and kisses him and weeps. And as the story unfolds, he profoundly forgives his brother. I know what you've done was wrong, but I I forgive you. My brothers come back. This family's reunited, it'll it'll be okay. So after a, a great reunion, he says, come stay with me and my family. Let's be together again. So what does Jacob do? Yes, I would love to come and stay with you and your family. You guys go on ahead. We're kind of tired. We'll catch up. And Esau goes on ahead and he runs the other way. What a terrible brother, right? Literally after 21 years of a grudge, your brother comes running to find healing and forgiveness, throws himself down before you, is so eager to restore that relationship. And even still, Jacob lies and runs away. I share all of this with Jacob because I hope you've noticed a pattern. Jacob really blew it. Laban was really a monster. Leah and Rachel, they really fought a lot. Everybody in the story, at some point or another, totally drops the ball. See, when we begin to actually expect other people to let us down, it frees us to do one of two things. The first is we can believe everybody's gonna let us down and become really angry and cynical and hateful. I can't trust anybody because they're all terrible. But when we do that, we in turn become just like the very people that are letting us down. We begin to hurt in the exact same way that they've hurt us. Or when we expect people to let us down, we're actually freed for an opposite response. Rather than being shocked and disappointed and really hurt when people sin against us, we can see it's exactly consistent with who they are. Of course they would sin against me. Why would I expect any different? Because all we do, every one of us, is sin against one another. And this attitude, expecting less of others, frees us then, like Esau, to give this radically unexpected grace. Of course you will screw me over and you'll take advantage of me and you'll cheat me. Of course. Let me forgive anyway. Let me give to you out of an abundance. It says it doesn't matter how much you've taken. 
here's what I'll give anyway. And this is profound because the reality is most of us look nothing like Christ. It's really easy like Jacob to go on cheating and putting our own interests first and building ourselves up and running from those who want to restore and reconcile and cheating others to get what's good for us. But when we begin to see that they're going to disappoint us, we're actually freed to start doing something different. See, in the New Testament, Jesus, he tells us that we should forgive as we've been forgiven. In the same measure it's been given to us, we should give to others. And so when we begin to see just how likely other people are to sin against us, we can see just how in need of Jesus they are as well. Say, I'm not perfect, and if he would give me grace, maybe I could give them grace. And maybe I could forgive and restore and seek healing in the most unexpected ways. And I wonder if you and I began to think less of others so that we could give them more, I wonder how many people would begin to see Jesus in us and want to become like us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are broken and sinful people and every person we meet in this life is equally broken and sinful. Would you free us to not expect them to be perfect or to get it all right, but to see their brokenness and their sin and in turn to begin to forgive as you have forgiven. Teach us to let go of our grudges our anger, and our hate. Teach us not to look out for our own way, but God, to build others up, to act as you have acted, becoming less that others can be made more, forgiving those who do not deserve it, that we can find hope and healing and unity together as brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are going to continue our worship here by, collect, or by uh, receiving now communion. And this meal we're going to receive, we said, as we've been forgiven, so we can forgive. Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he gave a promise to us that whenever we eat and drink this meal, his body and his blood, we receive again forgiveness. We receive forgiveness from him so that all of the times you and I have fallen short can be made no more. And out of that place of being forgiven, we can look to those who've wronged us or who continue to wrong us or who fail over and over again and say, you are forgiven because I've been forgiven. So this meal here is for anybody who's been baptized Anybody who belongs to that family of God who believes that you are sinful. If you're here today and you're perfect and you're not broken and don't need to be forgiven, don't come and receive. But if you're here and you're a broken mess, sometimes a little more put together than others, but still nonetheless hurting others through your thoughts and your words and your deeds, come and be forgiven.
Next is meals for those who recognize that our forgiveness has nothing to do with our own ability to fix it or even with the other person's ability to fix it. It simply comes from a gift of God that we don't earn, his death and his resurrection. And finally, this meal is for those who believe that in some mysterious way, what Jesus says is. And so when he said that he's present in this meal, in his body and blood, we simply say, okay. We believe you are here, and because you're here, things will be different and made new. See, in the night when Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took bread, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Same way he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, take and drink, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for forgiveness of all your sins. Do this often in remembrance of me. So we're going to come and eat and drink and be forgiven. And as you wait your turn to come and receive, I want to invite you to pause. Maybe listen to the songs or join in singing along, but pause and ask, who needs your forgiveness today? Who has let you down? And you need to let them off the hook by giving them grace abundantly. And maybe take a moment at your seat or in your pew and pray for that person that God would help you forgive them in the same way that you've been forgiven. I'm gonna have the ushers uh, assist people in coming down. We're gonna try it again differently. Each time we do this, we're doing it a little different to try to figure out how do we do it best in this weird pandemic time that's still going on. Uh, So what we're going to do is have you come through and receive communion and just go right back to your your seats. But we're going to ask you to wait until the ushers dismiss you. We've got some tape on the aisles. So try to keep a a safe distance between you and other people as you come forward. And and then as you're seated afterwards, after receiving, um, join us in singing, in prayer, reflecting on what God has done. I'm going to commune the band and the ushers and then invite all of you to come and receive what he freely gives. Now may this, the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen and preserve you in faith to life everlasting. May you forgive as he has forgiven. Amen. As we continue our worship today, we're going to continue by collecting an offering. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar, the reason we collect an offering in this place is because we believe that our money is part of the things we love and part of the way we live. And we want everything, every part of us, to be submitted to Christ. And so we collect an offering as an opportunity to say, I'm trusting Jesus with a portion of my income. I'm giving something to say, please work through the point to forgive and love the people around. And so if you would like to give today, if you came prepared to give, if you prefer cash and check, you can do so in the popcorn buckets. We're not gonna be passing them around, but uh, they're in the back corner. So as you leave, you can place that or your connect card, um, place it there in the bucket. And uh, if you place your connect card in there, we'd love to connect with you later this week. I plan on, on following up and saying, hello, thanks for being here. And Roger lied. He said, we won't give it to anybody weird, but I look at them. So at least one weird person will get your contact information. Touché. Yeah. 
if you prefer to give, just one. Yeah. If you prefer to give electronically, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. I'm super excited for West Fifth's first art show, and they're going to start having them every month, as well as some art markets and other fun things. So if you like art or if you want to come out and just check out what's been going on in the building for the last several months, you should join us for that. And now we get the questions that you guys text in. And based on the text today, I'm sure there's some weird ones. No? Um, no, actually. Thank you. Uh, you guys are so kind to me. Um, there is one question from today, but then we actually have a couple we missed last week. So okay. first, doesn't 7 plus 7 equals 14? Yes. So the part of the story I skipped is after marrying Rachel, there's a, another seven years he works and then receives this inheritance. Insane. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. Lots of working. Yeah. Okay. Uh, working. Now we, so the questions we missed last week, the first one I totally missed. So sorry. Did they wear underwear in the Bible? Oh, uh, Very important. I can't believe, can't believe I missed that. Yeah. Uh, last week I was sharing in a conversation with somebody about, uh, I was reading about some old monastic rules and the way that monks used to live and they weren't allowed to have personal property. And so all of their clothes belonged to the community and they didn't wear underwear except for when they were traveling, they would check out communal underwear and then it was their job to clean it and put it back when they were done. I'm glad we don't live then or like that. Yeah. Yeah, there, we have a lot of complaints, but we don't require communal underwear. So. Not a thing at the uh, point. <laughs> you can have your own. Um, okay, so the, the last question we missed last week um, was in Matthew 26, 30, it says, after the Last Supper, that Jesus and the disciples sung a hymn. In study, I found it was probably the second halal, Psalms 115 through 118, with the first halal being Psalm 113 through 114. They said halal, but today we say hallelujah. Please differentiate the two. Also, what is the difference between Alleluia and Hallelujah? Different meanings, different languages, or just American laziness? I like it. Like, not no H for me. Hey, if we forgot your question last week, thank you uh, for your patience and your grace. Um, really good stuff. So, halal is the Hebrew word for praise. And during the Passover, there's a whole ritual they would practice of, I think, 12, maybe 15 steps, things they would do for several hours leading up to the meal and as a part of the meal. And part of that was singing songs of praise. So it's a really good guess um, that those were the, the psalms they sang because that would have been common practice. As far as uh, hallelujah versus hallelujah, I've heard different theories and I don't know what's true. So this is speculation and if you want to Google it and prove me wrong, feel free. Uh, so one theory is that hallelujah and hallelujah are the exact same because in Hebrew, um, there's a vowel that doesn't make any sounds that's at the start of some words. And so it would almost sound like you're just taking a breath, like, you know, and so maybe the hallelujah comes from that vowel that doesn't actually exist, um, but is there. Another theory is that it was alleluia for all of time because the actual way you would pronounce it in Hebrew would be alleluia. But, uh, with the rise of the Greco-Roman world trying to Hellenize things or make things more Greek, they added H to a bunch of stuff to make it more Greek. So maybe the hallelujah comes from just trying to make all these people look like Greeks. Um, I would say generally, 
If you want to say hallelujah or hallelujah or anything else, like, it's fine. It just means praise be to God, and it's an expression of celebration. So uh, I hope that helps. If you would like to text in further questions or if there's some real doozies that you forgot to text in today because you're just so stumped by them, uh, feel free to text in at any point during the week. The number's online at thepointknox.com and we'll either respond to them on Wednesday night on Facebook or next Sunday morning here in person. Thank you guys for not throwing any doozies at me today. That was kind of (laughs) nice. Yeah. I appreciate it. Now, before you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.